Welcome to the Health Leaders Podcast, the place for peer-sourced and solution-focused insights for healthcare executives, with new episodes airing every Tuesday. My name is Eric Wicklin, and I'm the Technology and Innovation Editor for Health Leaders. This podcast is sponsored by Walters Kluwer's Health, bringing you up to date, the premier resource for clinical information and treatment recommendations used by more than 2 million total users worldwide. Visit go.uptodate.com forward slash health leaders underscore podcast to learn more. Today, we're talking to Amy Lerman, a member of the law firm Epstein Becker Green, about telehealth policy in the wake of the pandemic and the accompanying public health emergency. It's safe to say the telehealth landscape right now is a very confusing jumble of federal and state regulations. And Amy's firm has recently released a report analyzing that complex landscape. So we'll be talking about what health systems should be doing to assess their telehealth strategy in these in these trying times and as we head into 2024. Hello, Amy. Hi, Eric. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, no problem. Thanks very much for joining us today. I'm going to get right into this. Uh, Let's set the stage here. What should health system leaders know about the current telehealth policy landscape? Well, you know, and I don't think this is pandemic driven, although we'll get into, you know, pandemic specific types of, um, you know, impacts. But the telehealth regulatory landscape um, has been and continues to be a moving target. So we've got activity, as, as you noted, kind of happening at both the federal and the state levels. And I think that regulators, uh, you know, both before, uh, during, and, and now after the public health emergency do remain committed to supporting use of telehealth services. There's still this parallel assumption, um, you know, that, um that providers will continue to provide the that to provide these services safely and effectively, uh, upholding standards of care. This was, you know, I think years ago, the the regulatory hurdle that a lot of states had to get over um, to feel comfortable uh, regulating around telehealth services. That the standards of care would be upheld in the same manner when services were being provided via telehealth as they are. Um, when those services are provided in person. I think states, as well as the feds, have gotten on board with that, but um, you know, regulating around that has, has continued to be a focus. And so um, over the past year, kind of talking post-PHE, um, states have taken actions in, in many different forms, um, replacing in some cases pre-pandemic telehealth laws entirely, uh, creating new parameters and requirements that were not previously addressed, uh, perhaps, you know, working off of the experiences learned during the PEHE. Uh, and so I think that it just continues to be a moving target and um, health system leaders really just need to keep watching the space. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's changing fast. <laughs> yeah, and we're a couple years removed from the uh, the PA. Well, we're yeah. a couple years removed from the pandemic now, and uh, yeah. so it's interesting to see where things are going. What do you think are the lessons? The biggest lessons learned from the pandemic that if, that, that are affecting telehealth policy going forward? Well, you know, it's uh, during the pandemic because of many of the flexibilities, uh, there was greater utilization because it it was so much easier for providers to offer telehealth services, it became a necessity, certainly, um, from the beginning, and I think for quite a while for, uh, you know, consumers, patients um, to receive services via telehealth. Um, There has been 
quite a gathering of data. So greater utilization of telehealth has led to more encounter data. And I think a big lesson, this is the one that, the, the, this is the takeaway for me, um, mm -hmm. is that the data has led to greater scrutiny federal level, state level, um, and of course, enforcement. So, um, you know, I, I look at actions, you know, it's, it's a little easier to track at the federal level, certainly, um, when you look at efforts, you know, by the Department of Justice and, and OIG, um, certainly to identify and prosecute telefraud schemes. And, and that's something that, you know, has, has continued um, to uptick over the last several years. Um, and then OIG, I think, has also taken some impressive steps in terms of releasing substantive guidance and, you know, really to help providers to say it's OK to offer these services. But, um, you know, we're looking at the data and we're seeing things that we um, we would like from a fraud and abuse perspective for providers to improve upon um, in terms of claim submission and documentation and um, the medical necessity of these services. So I think OIG has helped to provide a little bit more of a roadmap, um, both in terms of substantive guidance, as well as even if you just look at their work plan. Um, they're continuing to look at different aspects. I think in 2023, um, there are ongoing audits related to um, use of telehealth for opioid use disorder treatment services, home health services, um, general use of the services by Part B beneficiaries, um, expansion uh, related to telehealth uh, in state Medicaid programs. And so, um, again, a lesson learned is that um, you know, the, the feds, and I think probably similar efforts at the state level, they're just harder to track, um, are, are creating this opportunity to um, help advise providers um, by way of guidance, but also, I guess, if the rules are not followed, to enforce. So I think that um, the other takeaway and a lesson learned um, in, in from my perspective is that um, compliance has become a very important issue to speak with uh, health systems, other providers of telemedicine services about, um, because certainly for, um, you know, more well-established health systems, um, you know, compliance programs are part of the norm, but a lot of the smaller companies that popped up during the pandemic that have continued to operate, that provide really valuable services, and, you know, they need to you know, legitimize in, for, in terms of fraud and abuse compliance and, um, you know, trying to make sure that they're tracking these data, you know, as well and, um, you know, responding accordingly in terms of whether it's claims auditing and monitoring, um, just a better infrastructure for operating compliantly according to the myriad of laws that they are required mm -hmm. to follow as healthcare providers. Yeah. Uh, do you feel that uh, healthcare leaders, healthcare executives, they understand uh, the, the, the added level of scrutiny now? I think so. Um, you know, I think that Certainly, you know, in, within health systems, you know, none of this is new. Let's, I mean, let's remember tele, telehealth for, you know, an experienced health system, health system leader, you know, leaders within that system. This is just simply another modality of providing care. Um, so if, you know, a health system is already well equipped and, uh, you know, positioned to, you know, track data, track enforcement, um, you know, incorporate that in whatever manner is appropriate into their existing compliance infrastructures. This is, let's just say, another parallel that they need to follow and, um, you know, to understand how is this different? I feel like that was a question that we got from, you know, clients of all kinds, you know, certainly at the beginning of the PHE, you know, how how is this different? How is this regulated differently? And we said in many respects, it's not. Um, but, you know, there are state level, you know, requirements and there are federal requirements and certainly um, a lot of 
gray sometimes in terms of what a telehealth provider can do. You know, if a state board of medicine, for example, has you know said, well, this is what a physician can do, um, and the question would naturally come back, well, is that in person? Is that telehealth? And I, I think we've I think we've cleared up a lot of that gray um, over the last several years and even pre-pandemic. But um, I, I think health system leaders, if they, if they already have you know good infrastructures in place uh, for tracking compliance, this is just sort of another parallel set of data points that they need to be tracking and hopefully okay. are. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of the changes that come out of of, of the pandemic and the PHA work were with, with regard to what people could do, what health system could do with telehealth. And there was a lot more that they could do, mm -hmm. due in part to CMS waivers. Uh, yes. Uh, a lot of those uh, ended with the PHE, but not all of them. Um, many of them have actually been extended for a while. What should healthcare providers be aware of with regard to the extensions of certain waivers, and what should they be doing to prepare for the end of for that basically the next deadline, which is, I think is the end of 2024? It is. It is. So just you know, a tiny bit of history. Um, you know, mm -hmm. we had the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023, which um, you know. Per your comment, you know, it, that was really what ensured this extension of, you know, a number of these federal flexibilities under Medicare um, through the end of next year, December 31st, 2024. And I believe even just last week when CMS issued its calendar year 2024 physician fee schedule final rule, um, these these flexibilities were also referenced in it. I will, I will confess I have not read that from cover to cover yet, um, but I, I believe it, it it does make reference to these flexibilities. And just in a nutshell, um, you know, there are, you know, flexibilities with respect to, um, you know, the types of providers that can continue serving um, as providers of telehealth services. Uh, Medicare beneficiaries can continue receiving telehealth services in their home. That was something that was not, um, you know, allowed pre-pandemic, uh, no geographic restrictions. Uh, the, you know, kind of existing telehealth rules, coverage rules under Medicare had uh, geographic restrictions on them. Um, you know, the use, continued use for, you know, these extensions of audio only services, um, you know, and, you know, all, you know, I guess, behavioral mental health services, um, waiving some requirements related to in-person visits within six months of an initial service and I think annually thereafter. So those are some great flexibilities. And I think that, um, you know, in terms of preparing for the next deadline, which, you know, as you pointed out, is not until the end of next year. Um, you know, this is an area where when you think about what Congress is um, highlighting as priorities with as far as regulating telehealth, I think coverage and payment for telehealth services under Medicare is an area of interest. Um, you know, some colleagues of mine, you know, certainly are are tracking that and I check in with them all the time to say what's going on on the Hill. Um, but I think that providers have to really do the same. You know, CMS is going to continue to push out guidance. I think that, you know, in this instance, they've done a very good job. They've had FAQs. They've tried to really keep their website up to date um, as far as these flexibilities, because I think they're very important to the Medicare population. And I think CMS, I hope, is going to continue putting out some good guidance, um, thinking about what's going on on the Hill, certainly, um, you know, however, you know, health system leaders have access to that type of intel. Um, but it's an extension that goes fairly far into the future. So it's it's hard to know at this moment exactly which flexibilities CMS could rescind um, as of that deadline. I think they're going to keep some of them in place. I think some of them they're going to modify. 
possible they're going to, you know, add new things. Um, that to me is also a function of going back to our earlier, you know, comments about, you know, data tracking. You know, what is CMS doing? What is OIG tracking? Um, I think those things are also potentially going to motivate, you know, what sort of regulatory activity we may see, let's say, you know, starting maybe early in 2024 as Medicare starts to think about that December 31st deadline at the end of next year. Okay. Now, with a lot of these, a lot of these flexibilities are continuing. Some did not. Some ended with the PHE. Is there anything that surprised you in terms of how how telehealth is being handled now, or or how policy is being handled now? Yeah. Um, well, let's start with the wait. There were waivers that did end with the end of the PHE. Um, licensure, professional licensure. That that is a tricky one, and um, you know, I think it's an important. One in terms of the impact, um, because you know, general rule, all states require healthcare professionals to hold licenses to practice that have been issued by you know the state's relevant professional board. Um, that's a general rule. It was waived uh, really by every state during the public health emergency. But those were some of the waivers that were rescinded even before you know the official federal end of the public health emergency. States went back to the their their rules. You know, my state. You're providing services. You need a license, and um, you know that that's kind of that's difficult for telehealth providers who are looking to have, you know, as close to a national footprint as they can, so that they can, you know, expand the access to their services to, uh, you know, as as big a slice of the population as possible. And we have the compacts, you know, interstate compacts like the interstate medical licensure compact, the nurse licensure compact. There's there's a number of compacts that have jumped up, but they don't in most cases, allow any sort of universal license. I think, you know, maybe the nurse licensure compact is an exception that, you know, once you once your state joins and you get a license under that compact, it allows you, you know, at least within any compact state to practice. But um, I think that that was a big one because I think it opened, it opened the doors um, when the waivers were put in place to allow providers really to practice across state lines, you know, Clearly, you know, under the rules of states when they created waivers or, you know, adjusted modified rules, um, wanting providers to have a license, but not necessarily requiring that the provider have a license in the state where they would be providing the services. So I think that did take away a big, significant feeling of flexibility for providers. And we've sort of gone back to the original regime. And mm -hmm. it's an area where I think telehealth providers continue to struggle, um, both in terms of just the mechanics of getting all the licenses, you know, state by state by state, but also just the operational um, considerations, keeping them up to date, what it costs, you know, and and so it's, it's just something that I think a lot of people hoped would become a little bit smoother as a result of the pandemic and, and the waivers felt like a really positive step, but, you know, states have, have pulled back. Um, policy changes, you know, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about remote prescribing. And, nice. and yeah, and um, activity at the federal level, I think, has been the most interesting. Um, you know, we had um, waiver a waiver put in place during the public health emergency by DEA. Um, and just prior to the end of the public health emergency back in May, I think it was in March of 2023, DEA published these notices of proposed rulemaking related to this issue. Long time coming, uh, certainly predating the pandemic. And um, so I think stakeholders were sort of wondering what was going to happen, you know, come May 11th. But 
um, you know, DEA published these notices of proposed rulemaking, received an overwhelming response, uh, thousands upon thousands of comments to their notices, has issued some temporary rules, um, you know, a first one and then a second one more recently um, that have really continued those same flexibilities that were put in place under the emergency waiver. Um, my personal feeling is that um, there's more to come, certainly. Um, DEA created this extension, um, I think, uh, give it, so in order to give the agency time to figure out what the most reasonable strategy is going to be. You know, again, going back to this notion that I think the, you know, the telemedicine community wants and I think, you know, deserves some flexibility to be able to do things like prescribe, but it has to be balanced with uh, concerns at, you know, state and federal levels to ensure that um, allowing providers to do an activity such as remote prescribing, it builds in appropriate controls. Um, you know, it's done safely, it's done effectively. Um, we're not creating an over-prescribing problem. I mean, we are we already have enough problems related to you know opioid use and other things. So um, I understand the wariness, but I think that that is that's a significant policy change that I think is continuing to. You know, it's again more of this moving target that we're seeing. Yeah, and I think it's safe to say the DEA's original proposal for uh, remote prescribing beyond the pandemic was not well received. No, uh, really. no, no, no. What was it like? Thirty-eight thousand or more comments. I, you know, I don't know if that was a record, but it feels like a record. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so it's, a, it's it really is a challenge then to try to uh, define some common ground on how this how this should be managed. Yeah. Yeah, well, and then you have to balance in what the states are doing. You know, we've got, um, you know, DEA is grappling, you know, with its issues at the federal level and states, I think, you know, even again, pre-pandemic, we're moving fairly gradually toward allowing licensed physicians as well as, you know, other professionals for whom prescribing would be within their scope of practice to prescribe. They were, states were more focused on the non-controlled substances. And I think over time, um, you know, Many states eventually have, you know, got on board allowing professionals to prescribe remotely without requiring an in-person examination prior to issuing the prescription, uh, allowing those examinations instead to occur via telehealth. Um, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm assuming states are watching the federal space, trying to balance their regulatory, um, you know, rules with whatever DEA may be thinking about. Um, but also, I think at the state level. Um, they are maybe a little bit more focused on creating like specific practice standards. Um, you know, like states have these, you know, are maintaining in many cases two separate policies, one that addresses, you know, this notion of non-controlled substances and then having to speak in some form or fashion to how what the state's view is on prescribing of controlled substances. I would think in many cases is really just deferring to what the federal standard is. But also um, another trend that, you know, we, we started to notice um, even before 2023, but, you know, states creating remote prescribing policies that are specific to certain types of treatment, you know, substance use disorder being a big one. Um, mm -hmm. So that states are trying to get a little more granular to say, we don't want to treat all types of remote prescribing one way. We don't want to say all of it is bad. We don't want to say all of it, you know, go for it. We, we you know, we, they're realizing they may need to take a little bit of um, particularity in terms of how they're regulating around certain disease states or populations. And so I think we're, we're seeing, you know, little bits of activity in that area as well. Yeah. Now, in both this remote prescribing and in licensing, it seems interesting that uh, 
right now we're trying to figure out what states are able to 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 govern or what what part they want to play in this and where the federal government steps in mm -hmm. and and sees this as a, as, as a national policy do you see any any changes in how that is being done as we move away from the pandemic and we talk about uh, interstate licensure and 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 prescribing rules that that span the country rather than one specific state yeah um hmm. i mean there you know states are it's it's not a one-size-fits-all game <laughs> in, this, in this telemedicine space and you know states have really continued you know to take so many different approaches to regulating telemedicine services um let's see let's think about 2023 um you know i think that we're seeing some interesting activity at the state level in terms of how states are um, regulating the use of mid-levels and advanced practice providers. Um, mm -hmm. It's an area that I think was not originally a focus as far as um, regulating the provision of telemedicine services, but um, it's it hasn't been for a while. It's no longer a physician-only type game. Uh, Non-physician licensed professionals are a big part of delivery models, uh, addresses challenges, you know, related to supply and access. And I think states are what we've seen putting a lot of energy into um, thinking about how mid-levels and APPs can safely and efficiently utilize telehealth because um, when you looked across in any given state, you know, the, the professional boards, you know, let's say even five, six years ago, you just didn't really see any information. Um, we obviously were not telling people to guess, but it, you know, it felt a little bit like you were saying, well, this is how they're regulating it, you know, at the medical board level, but um, I don't know how that applies to, you know, a psychologist, for example. Um, but I think we're seeing, we are seeing a lot more clarity in states, uh, not just this year. I, I think that's been a slow uptick um, with states really understanding that um, this is not only something they have to make clear as far as their rules for physicians. They have to make it clear for any type of licensed professional. And, um, and, they, and they, I think they've started to really regulate accordingly. Yeah, and it's, it certainly is an issue now with with shortages of, of, mm -hmm. of providers that we're seeing uh, the ability to have to, to have more people use be able to use telehealth. To, yeah, to, no, telehealth. for sure, for sure. And actually, another thing um, that you know I think we're seeing at the state level, um, we we were talking we were talking about compacts, but I think mm -hmm. states also have continued to create exceptions to their own professional licensure requirements. Um, very often like specific to a certain type of professional, uh, sometimes specific to certain circumstances where cross-state practice could help to support like a pre-existing relationship between a professional and their patients. Um, this has been a long-standing challenge. And I think that, you know, if you look sort of over, let's even say like a 10-year trajectory going back about, you know, state regulatory priorities in telehealth, I feel like, you know, when, when, when states started to regulate more in this space, um, you know, even going back like as far as 10 years ago, uh, focus on physicians, uh, there were a lot of different types of licenses, you know, you could get, you know, you could be licensure by reciprocity, you could do licensure by, you know, there were lots of different ways that one could get a license in a state. Then I feel like we backed off on that and we had, you know, a lot of these, you know, there was the push for compacts and, and those are still around too, but states have also now, I think, 
backed in, you know, into where they may have been, you know, again, a number of years ago to support patients who do things like travel, uh, spend time outside their home states. Um, you know, there are states that allow a physician who's licensed in a different state to provide services, you know, to patients in, the, in that state without a license. Um, and they may use terminology like on an irregular basis or on an infrequent basis. Um, some states define what that means. It could be, you know, less than a certain number of days per calendar year. So um, trying to say, it's okay, um, we get it. You may have a patient who travels over state lines and we're gonna try and support that. Um, there are, there's, you know, at least one state that I can think of um, that created an exception available to patients that were seeking second opinions, like really pretty specific. Um, so trying to be flexible, um, saying, well, if you're going to seek a second opinion, um, you know, you can, and you're temporarily traveling, um, you know, you, you can have some flexibility around the type of provider you see. Um, you know, states have, some states have continued to allow providers to register, um, you know, not have to get a license in that state per se, but if they, if it's clear that they're providing telemedicine services and only telemedicine services, um, there could be a registration. Like these are some, of th these are not new ideas, but I feel like states backed off them for a while, um, perhaps trying to see if the compact uh, route would work. And um, in many cases, I think are doing both. Um, but I think that's another area where states, you know, have, have been trying to move the needle and and do interesting things. Um, I'm going to be optimistic. It's in the name of access and and providing, you know, allowing patients to get access to these services um, via telemedicine um, when they would like to. Nice. That's good. A lot to, there's a lot to take in right now. Yeah, there certainly is. It's 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 not a dull area of, of law to follow. That is for sure. Yeah, well, I'm sure that we will be talking again about this um, as we move on and as as two, 2024 gets into play and we start thinking about the end of uh, the, the the latest waivers and and where yeah. telehealth is going. This is this is an on very much an ongoing uh, issue. For sure. Yep. Yeah. No, it's, it's a super interesting area. And I think, you know, we just we just have to keep watching because you know, the the weight, the extensions have kicked the can down the road. Um, but, you know, I think with with some time, we're, we're going to start to see, as you said, sort of what what trends may emerge in 2024 that will, you know, walk us toward December 31st and what happens then. Okay. Well, great. A Amy, thank you very much for joining us today. You are very welcome. Thanks for having me. And thank you to listening to the uh, thank you for listening to the Health Leaders podcast. We will be back next Tuesday with more healthcare industry insights.